0: Good day, everyone. Thank you for joining us and welcome to a brand new episode of the GI Startup Podcast. Today's interview is going to be really special. Dr. Asma Shoket and I are going to be talking to Erica Burnell, CSO of Geneoscopy. Erica got her bachelor's degree at Cornell University. She later went on to join the MD-PhD program at Washington University in St. Louis. In 2017, she co-founded Geneoscopy with her brother, and she is currently Chief Scientific Officer over there. We're gonna be talking to her about everything colon cancer screening, and with Dr. Asma Shokat on board, this is going to be a great interview. I hope you enjoy it. All right, welcome everyone, um, and thank you for joining us. I'm really excited about today's interview. It's really gonna be cool. We're starting a, a new thing uh, where we're gonna have a, a, an expert weigh in on the subject that we're going to talk about. So today we have Erica Burnell. She is the chief scientific officer of geneoscopy. Welcome, Erica.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Thank you for being here. And then uh, we have Dr. Asma Shokat from um, NYU, and she's here to provide expert opinion. Welcome, Asma.
2: Thank you so much for having me. Hi, guys.
0: Thank you for being here. Okay. Um, so we'll get started right away. Um, asthma, we've had you before and, uh, we talked a little bit about your background, uh, but Erica, um, tell us a little bit about yourself. Tell us your story. How did it start and, um, how did you end up here?
1: Absolutely. So I'm an MD PhD candidate at the Washington university school of medicine. Still have a few months outstanding on my medical degree, but I completed my PhD in molecular genetics and genomics um, at the McDonald Genome Institute and during my research as an undergraduate and during my medical training, I was very interested in understanding the ways that we could use non-invasive technologies to improve our understanding of gastrointestinal health. So, um, I started the company Genoscopy during my medical education to look at ways in which we can isolate eukaryotic RNA from stool samples, and then use that to accurately diagnose, monitor, and treat gastrointestinal disease.
0: You know, I'm, I'm glad you brought this up, the non-invasive techniques. Um, asthma, you wrote the guidelines on um, colorectal cancer screening for ACG, and I, I can't help but remember the description that you guys had in that guidelines about the ideal screening test. And you know, and I'm quoting here, um, it should be non-invasive. It should have high sensitivity and high specificity, should be safe, readily available, convenient, and inexpensive. And when we, as gastroenterologists talk about colon cancer screening, our holy grail is always colonoscopy, but it doesn't really measure up to these characteristics, does it?
2: No, it doesn't. So actually the ideal test doesn't exist. And um, what we want to do is achieve as many of those checkpoints as we possibly can. So I'd be curious to see what uh, Erica's thought is in, uh, uh, in which characteristics should be most important.
1: I mean, I think the goal is to not sacrifice anything that was outlined in those guidelines, right? Um, you know, you want the, the test to be affordable. You want the test to be available to patients you want to have a very fast turnaround time and then you want to maximize the sensitivity and the specificity um, to what was set out in those guidelines. And I think when you're, when you're looking at those fronts, um, there are a number of different approaches that different companies have taken. There are different priorities that companies have taken to leverage their own technologies. But I think at the core of genoscopy, we've, Use those guidelines as a Bible, right? Um, that is our goal. That's our dream.
0: All right, wonderful. So, You know, when we think about non-invasive testing, um, non-colonoscopy-based testing, particularly stool-based testing for colorectal cancer, um, we've gone through, I think, a lot of development from just, you know, fecal occult blood testing to FET testing to um, stool DNA testing now. And uh, Erica, you guys are doing something different now. So give us a little bit deeper dive into the technology that you guys are developing and How should we expect that to change the practice of colorectal cancer screening?
1: Yeah, so the origin of this technology um, was through this microbiome lab that I was working in, and we were evaluating environmental enteropathy, which is a nonspecific inflammation of the GI tract that traditionally afflicts people in countries that don't have access to clean water or have a lot of parasitic burden. Um, And we were specifically evaluating Um, environmental enteropathy in children in Africa to determine which children would end up growth faltering due to this disease. So when you're thinking about inflammatory conditions comparable to Crohn's and ulcerative colitis, we cannot look at DNA because there are not really variants that indicate the type or extent of disease. And so we were really forced to look at RNA, which is notoriously difficult to isolate. And then subsequently, when you're thinking about children in Africa, you know, we can't do scopes, we can't do biopsies, we just don't have the infrastructure there. What we do have is diapers. So I had, um, I had these these medical center, centers getting diapers from children, shipping them to St. Louis, and we did the best that we could with what we had. And so through that, initiative, we developed a very reliable and reproducible way to isolate the eukaryotic or human cells from stool samples. And then from these cells, we were able to perform transcriptome sequencing. And that is the basis for the technology. Um, Stabilizing the RNA in stool samples derived specifically from both the enterocytes and the lymphocytes that are sloughed from the GI tract and then doing transcriptome sequencing, whether it be next-generation-based sequencing, you know, digital PCR sequencing, and then using the concentrations to predict disease. So when I applied that to environmental enteropathy, we were very successful at stratifying extent of disease and then predicting which children with growth falter. And so I said, why can't we also apply this to other gastrointestinal diseases like colorectal cancer, IBD, IBS, necrotizing enterocolitis, um, and that was kind of the foundation of the company. So the core technology in some is to isolate eukaryotic RNA from stool samples, perform transcriptome sequencing of that isolate, and then use that to predict disease, our lead diagnostic being colorectal cancer and advanced adenomas in average-risk asymptomatic individuals.
0: That's wonderful. I was recently uh, speaking to Momo from Biome and speaking to a few other people, I think it sounds like RNA is going to be the new frontier in medicine, uh, where, you know, back in the 90s and early 1000s, we thought that DNA sequencing is going to solve every problem um, that we've ever had in medicine. But, you know, DNA can tell you a lot about what could potentially happen, but it doesn't tell you much about what is actually happening, whereas RNA is actually more of a in real time um, indication to what the cells are actually doing and what functions are they producing. So what kind of signal are you looking for in RNA when we talk about advanced adenomas or colorectal cancer screening?
1: Yeah, I think specifically in the colorectal cancer screening space, we've looked at biopsy studies, and we've recognized through existing data frames that that are publicly available, that RNA sequencing is actually better at predicting disease and predicting outcomes um, for patients with colorectal cancer. It's just been a matter of preserving that signal and reliably isolating it from the sample of interest, whether it be blood or stool. And I think that our understanding is that we've identified a universal molecular signature that is reflective of all DNA changes or most DNA changes that occur at the adenoma or cancer level. So when you're thinking about colorectal cancer specifically, most cancers go through the canonical pathway, which is the APC KRAS TP53 malignant transformation, and while APC is a huge gene with, you know, hundreds and hundreds of different variants that may or may not have kind of implication of malignant potential, um, all the cells, all the adenomas, all the dysplasia that is generated from these numerous DNA variants converge on a similar signal at the RNA level. And that's what. Our technology is detecting that kind of universal signature that's intrinsic to all or most advanced adenomas, most cancers.
0: So it sounds like there's a kind of a common pathway that these cells or these different cancers or precancers converge at that that you guys are, are testing for at genioscopy.
1: Asa probably knows more than I do about this, but there's really two. Um, there's the kind of canonical and non-canonical, and that's the majority. Um, I think we've focused on the canonical pathway in our signature with hopes to expand into kind of that microsatellite instability or improve on our ability to detect that kind of non-canonical pathway.
0: So it sounds like you guys have a really interesting stool-based test to diagnose uh, colorectal cancer. Uh, we listed a few of, of the already available stool tests out there. How does your technology differ from that? How How does it compare, for example, to DNA-based stool testing?
1: So the differentiator in my mind is on three fronts. The first is just the accuracy profile. So in preliminary studies in a prospective cohort, we were able to detect 60% of advanced adenomas which is nearly a 50% improvement relative to existing diagnostics. And we expect that accuracy profile, specifically for advanced adenomas, um, to pan out in our pivotal study, which we'll be publishing on this later this year. The second front that I think is novel is our our method for recruiting patients and our engagement with the, um, the patient population. So for our clinical trial, we've used a completely decentralized recruitment strategy, um, which means that our patient population is highly diverse. It's much more reflective of the intended use population. It's in terms of women, minorities, patients with socioeconomic um, health disparities. We're able to capture those patients and mainly influence people who are not getting colonoscopies or people who would otherwise be missed by traditional screening mechanisms. So making sure that we're actually getting the patient population that need a non-invasive screening. And then the third component that I think differentiates us from existing non-invasive screening technologies is that we've actually created an infrastructure with our community where patients that come back with a positive test at genoscopy Can get directed to go receive a colonoscopy. So, my personal preference is not a cross sectional, you know, you had a non invasive positive test, but rather a longitudinal paradigm to help navigate patients through the colorectal cancer screening program throughout their lifetime.
0: That sounds wonderful. Can you tell us a little bit more about this? Because I I didn't know about this particular aspect of of what you guys do. Can you tell us a little bit more about your outreach programs and and, um, how you actually recruit patients and if there is more of a long-term plan towards um, that particular point?
1: Absolutely. So traditional clinical trials recruit patients through either large endoscopy centers, or they set up traditional sites at large academic centers. So they'll go to the gastroenterologist and say, any patient that is going to receive a colonoscopy within the next 12 months, can you enroll them onto our clinical trial? What we do is that we have a digital campaign. We have a nurse call center, and then patients who view our advertisements or view our Um, notifications that we send out, they click on the link, they complete a survey, um, and then a nurse will call them, confirm eligibility, go through the informed consent, go through the medical data release forms, and enroll them onto the clinical trial virtually. Subsequently, we help them, help navigate them through the clinical trial process in terms of having a sample shipped to their address. Having, or having a collection kit shipped to their dress, having the sample sent back to our laboratories, and then we navigate them through signing up for and receiving a colonoscopy. What this means is we're actually catching patients at home in their living room. Um, we're catching patients in rural populations. We're catching pa- the average patient who is on Facebook looking at advertisements. Um, and what we've seen is over 85% of the patients that enroll onto our clinical trial do not actually have a colonoscopy scheduled at the time of enrollment, which means those are individuals that would have otherwise been completely missed in traditional clinical trial approaches.
0: That's really great, really, really great, I think. And I think it, it speaks a lot um, to you, Asma. I, I know that um, you, you got your public health degree uh, for reasons similar to this, to reach out to these people um, that are usually missed with um, colon cancer screening, um, as well as other, basically healthcare or basic healthcare needs. So it sounds like, at least from listening to the numbers um, that you were saying and and reading those numbers, you know, with an advanced adenoma detection rate, I think you said sixty percent. Asthma. I know the ideal test is does not exist, but it sounds like we're getting pretty close. What do you think?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Our benchmark is truly colon cancers, particularly early stage ones. And then with advanced adenomas, you know, we'll take take what we get with the understanding that a lot of these non-invasive tests would be repeated at shorter intervals than we would for a colonoscopy. So sensitivity for advanced adenomas isn't as crucial because we think we'll catch them at the next screening or if that advanced adenoma continues to advance um, or starts uh, acquiring more dysplastic changes. So 60% is very good. And uh, I was curious um, about Erica's thoughts about the recent bar that uh, uh, CMS has set for these tests for colon cancer, in particular, in terms of sensitivity, specificity. Do you think those are reasonable, and are they achievable?
1: So I think, and that was specifically for the the blood tests. Um, I think they have interest in putting out a similar recommendation for stool based tests. Um, I think the goal of that kind of guidance was they were looking at the existing paradigm, what exists today, um, which is really just fit testing, coligard, and epiprocolon. And based on their recommendations, they pulled, you know, fit testing and coligard into the okay category, and they left epiprocolon into the not okay category, and then they kind of set a bar in between those three diagnostics um, for future companies that are coming out with blood based assays and stating that they're not interested in covering certain assays that don't meet that minimum threshold where Cologuard and Fit are on one side and epiprocolins on the other. So I think it was reflective of kind of what is out there and what are we willing to cover? Um, I'd be curious if they would raise the bar for stool-based tests um, given that Cologuard is already out there, given that Cologuard has such high compliance, um, given that they have such extensive commercial traction, um, because I think the recommendations for blood-based tests is a little bit lower than what Cologuard was able to achieve with their stool-based assay.
2: Yeah, interesting because um, depending on how you look at the Cologuard data, the specificity actually falls a bit below their cutoff. Yeah. So yeah, it's it's a it's it's a matter of time to see what they think about blood uh, stool-based tests and whether they use the same benchmark as they've set for blood-based tests.
1: Yeah, and I think, like you were describing, you know, the specificity should be taken into consideration with the recommended screening interval, right? So if If a FIT test is done once a year, and the specificity for no findings on a colonoscopy is 94%, but a Cologuard test is done once every three years, and their specificity is sitting at 87%, you know, that might be a comparable specificity in terms of the total number of patients that they send to receive a colonoscopy after a positive diagnostic test. Mm
2: -hmm. Are there certain benchmarks that you're hoping to meet or exceed?
1: I want to hit the ones that you guys published on. (laughs) Um, That's my goal, right? Um, I think a 90% specificity, a 60% sensitivity for advanced adenomas, and a 95% sensitivity for colorectal cancer is my dream. Um, I think a diagnostic test like that would change the way that we do colorectal cancer screening for this country. Um, And I think we have the technology to do that. Um, and I think it'll just be a matter of, of time um, before we're able to kind of develop um, that assay that is that sensitive.
0: That, that's wonderful. I'm, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up um, that, you know, it's a matter of time. And it, the question here that comes up is, what are the biggest hurdles, the biggest obstacles that stand in the way of this technology? And how do you expect those to play out in the near future?
1: Specifically for our company or for colorectal cancer screening
0: Specifically for a geneoscopy.
1: Sure. So we're surprisingly not as um, resource heavy as other companies in this space. So, you know, Freedom's raised over a billion dollars. Um, exact Sciences does a million tests at $500 a test or 2 million tests at $500 a test per, per year um, with several other acquisitions to contribute to their Bottom line, um, Gardens done a similar amount of, of raised and has a number of other tests to support their research and development activities. So I think that for us, um, being able to leverage the resources that we have to fully flesh out the technology um, that we've created, which is unbelievable, I think is, is, has been a challenge. Um, that being said, in the last three years you know we've raised 105 million we've built a, a 11,000 square foot cap CLIA laboratory we've almost completed our 10,000 patient prospective clinical trial in, in six months um, we have breakthrough device designation from the FDA for our lead assay for the advanced adenoma sensitivity specifically and I think you know if we can get this product on the market our kind of first generation tests, that will give me the resources and the um, runway that I need to kind of flesh out this technology to what I believe is its full potential.
0: So it sounds like mostly financial obstacles.
1: I think financial and um, just in general resources, you know, human capital, just bandwidth, things like that. Okay.
0: And then how far are we from that stage where you actually release a product?
1: Yeah, so as mentioned, kind of this this virtual recruitment strategy that we've used to enroll our, for our patient, Pivotal, um, while it's been unbelievable in terms of recruiting a diverse and well-rounded patient population, it's simultaneously been very advantageous for the company in terms of time, total time required for recruitment and cost per patient. So we've actually been able. We launched the clinical trial in July of, of 2021, and we're six months into the, the clinical trial launch, um, and we kind of are seeing the end of enrollment um, right now. So my hope would be to complete enrollment by Q1 of, of 2022, um, have the data come in soon after that, and then be submitting our pivotal trial to the FDA, the Clinical and Analytical Validation Studies, um, later this year. Given that we have that breakthrough device designation, we are hoping to have expedited approval of our application so that we could launch commercially early next year.
0: That sounds very soon. I, I hope that it works out that way. I would love to see your product in the market. I think let's talk a few specifics about the particular test since we we should expect it coming out soon. Um, how many stool samples does the patient have to give for this? Can the patient perform this at home? Does the patient have to send a stool sample to the lab? Is it a full stool or is it only part of it? Um, what are the specifics in in that sense?
1: Those are all the fun questions. Um, we call ourselves the Poo Tectors at Genoscopy, um, as we poo tect everyone. Um, so, what's also very cool, you know, I think that. Currently, diagnostics is is kind of with medicine sitting in the, the dark ages with the beepers and the fax machines. So we have tried to improve and leverage the new technology that we've had to make the patient experience with our company better. So we have an online patient portal where patients can go into this portal and they can kind of see exactly what's happening to them throughout the entire clinical trial. And we hope to maintain that as we move towards commercialization so they log on you know they put all their information in their address everything their insurance doctors information and then they kind of click a button and they can see their collection kit uh, being drop shipped to their facility or their residence and then once the collection kit comes to their house um, in the comfort of their own home whenever they need um, they deposit a stool sample I always say if you have like a 30 pound dog, that's about how much stool we need, but we do collect a full bowel movement. You put a stabilization buffer onto that stool sample, close it up, put it back in the box, and then you go back into your patient portal. You click a button and FedEx comes to your door, picks up the collection kit, and ships it overnight to our laboratories. Once it's received in our laboratory again, Notification pops up on your patient portal saying receives, sample checks out. We process the, the stool sample. And then for the clinical trial, you'll go off to receive your colonoscopy. For commercialization, you'll just get a notification on your patient portal saying that the test results are ready.
0: That, that sounds fairly convenient. Um, you know, so the patient doesn't really have to leave the, their home. Um, they're updated all the time about, you know, the progress of, of that test ships overnight. That's that's great.
1: <laughs> I mean, I think patients are becoming way more autonomous. They have so much more control over their health care. They know more. They're able to, you know, go on up to date just as much as I can as a as a future physician. So we want to put the data into the patient's hands and just help them. Kind of get these recommended screenings that they need.
0: Yeah, Asma, you had a question.
2: So I'm curious on this model. It might, it might work very well for the majority of our population. But you mentioned that you're able to reach rural populations. So how would you reach somebody that either doesn't have a smartphone, internet, or isn't literate, or English is not their first language?
1: Yeah. So. For the Hispanic populations, we do have the ability to translate, you know, medical data release forms and and instructions for uses into Spanish. Um, Beyond that, we haven't considered other languages, but have the, hopefully, ability to do so once I get those resources. Um, For patients that don't have Facebook, don't have social media, don't have smartphones, things like that, we have traditional um, mechanisms to reach out to patients. We have the nurse call center. A lot of patients still use snail mail. Um, so they will fax or snail mail to our nurse call center or can always just pick up the phone and call the nurse call center. But what we've realized is, you know, majority of our patients do have a computer, do have a smartphone um, and are able to engage in that way and actually prefer that. Um, or at the very least, they have the ability to text. Um, so we can provide them with Text messaging um, and say, please call us at this number. You know, call your nurse, your results are in, things like that.
2: Oh, that's great. And then in the future, I assume you um, plan to have physicians order this test, or do you continue to want to use uh, the f- patient model and have patients order their own tests?
1: Yeah, we hope to leverage telehealth for a lot of the prescription recommendations. Um, so we would be able to continue to have patients at home, um, continue to leverage kind of that non-invasive, don't need to go to a hospital to get a prescription. But um, you know, I, I think we ultimately will have you know, physician prescribed diagnostics with requisitions and, and the traditional mechanisms that you would need to complete kind of the, the billing and revenue cycle.
2: I see, and for patients that don't have insurance, how are you paying for their colonoscopies?
1: So for clinical trial, we just cover, um, you know, whatever expenses are incurred for the non-clinical trial. And um, that's something we would have to consider, you know, if they get a positive test from us or if they need to get a test, you know, how can we get patients that are underserved, um, freer, access to healthcare, that's definitely something that I would love to learn more about um, in terms of what is available and what we can do for those patients.
0: Wonderful. I'm, I'm glad this was brought up because whenever we um, kind of assess health tech products and health tech companies, there are always three questions that um, need to be asked is, you know, how does the technology help patients? In this case, it's clear, you know, it helps with prevention of um, uh, colorectal cancer or early diagnosis of colorectal cancer. And then how does it uh, benefit physicians? And I mean, I can think of many ways. And the last question is, how does it benefit payers? Because at the end of the day, you, you need you know patient's insurance to cover the cost of the actual test. Um, and that particular one can be tricky, especially when we talk about um, screening uh, tests, because it could take a very long time to show benefit for, for these particular tests on the long run for the payers. What are your thoughts on that, Erica?
1: So we have actually not had that much difficulty convincing payers that a a diagnostic that's more sensitive than Cologuard um, is advantageous. You know, I, I'd say 96% of insurers cover Cologuard. And so if we can demonstrate to them higher sensitivity for precancerous lesions, potentially higher sensitivity for colorectal cancer, mm-hmm. then I think it's it's a no-brainer, you know, they would want to cover the, the best test that's out there. Um, but I think the reason why they covered Cologuard is very easy to to see. You know, sixty percent of colorectal cancers are diagnosed in late stage. Um, a, a stage one, stage two colorectal cancer, five year survival is ninety five percent. stage three, stage four, colorectal cancer, five year survival is eleven percent. So it, it's very clear that that colorectal cancer is, the most preventable but least prevented cancer that's out there because it's so indolent, because it takes so long to go from normal tissue to adenoma, to advanced adenoma, to malignancy. So, I mean, I think if we can create a non-invasive diagnostic that hits those guidelines that's outlined by the AGA, then payers will just flock to it.
0: Wonderful. That That is, that is um, a wonderful answer. Considering that th- this podcast is particularly um, targeting physicians, of course, everyone in the GI space, but um, gastroenterologists in particular, what role did physicians play in building or supporting your company?
1: Yeah, I think there's two types of physicians that we have leveraged um, for this assay. The first is individuals who have prescribed the test. So primary care, OB-GYN, nurse practitioners. Um, and for that, we, we considered, you know, we were asking for considerations on how do we make this easy to prescribe? How, wh- what would you need for, to prescribe this for patients? Um, and their response was basically no out-of-pocket cost. And, you know, clicking buttons, um, that go directly to demonstrating that they fit the criteria for colorectal cancer screening so they get their check boxes, and then making sure that the accuracy profile was as good or better than what's out there. So that was kind of the, the person who's prescribing the test. And then the subsequent number of individuals that we considered um, was the gastroenterologists because they're the ones who are coming up with the guidelines. They're the ones who are describing the recommended screening intervals for colonoscopies after findings. Um, and so we have a, a number of summits that we've hosted with leaders in, in both the PCP and the GI community who have provided input on what this diagnostic needs to look like and what are the user needs for the diagnostic.
0: Wonderful. And I'm just curious, was it difficult to get physicians
1: involved? Um, physician, I think gastroenterologists in general tend to be academic, tend to love asking questions, enjoy the process of development, enjoy, you know, bench to bedside bench. So I haven't found it difficult. If I was trying to go after my husband's a surgeon, I could imagine, you know, maybe that would be harder. Um, but GIs are really kind, especially to young Lonely medical students. So
0: that's wonderful. Um, I'm I'm glad to hear that about our specialty. That's that's really great. Um, and then, how can physicians be more involved?
1: Uh, I mean, I I think I think GIs specifically do such a wonderful job of putting on wonderful conferences. We had ASCO GI last week. Um, you know, ACE. There's a huge representation at ACR. In the fall, there's that the Astro Conferences, there's a number of different subspecialty conferences held throughout the year. The AGA puts on a number of different conferences. I think that's the the best place that I get to learn about things. Um, DDW, another huge, just amazing opportunity um, for people like me who are interested in improving healthcare in the GI space to be able to walk up to the greats and ask questions. without, you know, having to kind of sit behind the the red tape. So, I mean, I appreciate academia and I appreciate kind of the GI community in general and think they're doing a great job of activating the young learners and the young innovators in this space.
0: Wonderful. So for the physicians out there, is, uh, if, if you get approached by uh, someone in a conference or something like that, um be sure to chat with them, answer their questions, be nice, uh, might help out. So, um, Erica, you're you're a physician or an almost physician. Um, based on the experience that you've had, um, you know, building a company, um, going down that route, what would you presume distinguishes you from other physicians?
1: I've had the luxury of having a very odd background um, in terms of my education and training. So I actually graduated from Cornell in 2013 with a Mm -hmm. dual degree in finance and plant engineering, um, which is not your traditional pathway for med school. And then I moved to Israel for a year to develop a vaccine for Shigella, which is where my Love for GI started. Um, and then I was working in a microbiome lab prior to matriculation to the MD-PhD program at WashU. So I think I had a multidisciplinary approach to medicine, a kind of long winding approach to medicine, um, which created a very open-minded approach to my education, which I think a lot of other, my peers traditionally were like, I want to be a doctor. <laughs> I want to help patients. Um so I think that's how I differentiated myself and and kind of learned the tools that I needed to be an entrepreneur. Um but I I mean I I think every one of my peers in medical school could do the same thing if they so desired. Just it's a a wealth of brilliance at at that school. They're just so smart.
0: That's wonderful. I I've seen this as a recurrent theme. Actually, um, different backgrounds um, seem to be something that actually um, propels people to, I think, innovate. Um, and I've seen a lot of people with backgrounds in engineering or finance, or um, you know, different um, degrees like an MD, MBA, or um, an MD, PhD, for example, um, and and that usually stimulates people. And you did mention that any of your colleagues can do it. Um, so for those for those people out there who are really interesting and interested in advancing their fields through technology and innovation, um, what kind of advice do you have?
1: I think that it's it's building your I call it the entrepreneurial tool set. So if you're interested in learning about entrepreneurship, you know, go to the local business school and take a class or. You know, if you're a physician, there's programs like Sling Health where you submit problems and you create a team of students who are bright-eyed and bushy-tailed like me and want to solve problems and, and, you know, help you solve the problems that you're experiencing in the clinic. Um, So I think it's just being proactive about building that tool set and trying to find opportunities that help you stretch those muscles that you otherwise don't experience um, being in the clinic and being on the wards.
0: That, that's wonderful. That's a wonderful answer. And, you know, you, you mentioned Sling Health. I think it's a, it's a wonderful thing um, to all the listeners out there. Look it up. Um, see what they do. It's really cool. And another cool thing is that um, you can actually open a chapter of Sling Health anywhere um, all over the country. So that would be something to, to consider. Um. Okay, so um, Erica, you're an almost MD, PhD, um, a CSO, an innovator. You know, I, I always ask everyone that I see that has achieved a lot um, about their time management and what kind of advice they have um, to other folks out there about how to manage your time. How, how do you do it?
1: Yeah, people always ask me that. I think that I, I don't like I'll say the first thing I do every morning is tackle the hardest problem right so if I have a PMA to write <laughs> you know that's the hardest problem that I have right now every morning when I am fresh when it's the prime of my day I think to myself how can I advance this project that's gonna take me months um, and I, I do that first thing in the morning and making sure that you're focusing on the rocks the core of the company and advancing those projects when you're at your best is so important and letting kind of the emails and the slack messages and the little fires that you have to put out every day, kind of making sure that that does not interfere with the the core requirements and the core milestones that you just have to get done um, over a very long period of time. And then the other thing that I think behooves people who are managing projects that do last a really long time is simultaneously looking at the long-term goal um, and making sure you're kind of on track at that high level and then getting down in the weeds and making sure that the day-to-day activities are all on track with that kind of long-term vision and then making sure that you just have a team in place that can do that so obviously none of this work that we do at the company would get done without the team that we've built um they're the powerhouse of of innovation they're the powerhouse of milestones They're the powerhouse of of kind of what we've been able to accomplish as a company so making sure you're doing your hardest projects first making sure that you're simultaneously Looking at the long-term picture and the short-term goals, and they're on track, and then building a really strong team, I think, is behooved me in terms of being able to time manage and get things done.
0: I think that that's a that's a wonderful answer, um, Asma. What's your secret?
2: Yeah, so I think um, um, multitasking it seems very attractive, but you don't quite get enough done. So I think prioritizing and then tackling one thing at a ta- at a time. And giving it your full energy probably fares much better than trying to come back to it you know while doing five other things ten times a day and we're still guilty of that but you know again as erica was saying you know i was thinking how 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 true it is that you know do the hardest thing first and then give it your fullest attention and then move on to the next task really important
0: i completely agree i can attest to that and i learned it the hard way i have to say all right. So um, to kind of end on a on a little bit of a lighter note, Erica, tell us the funniest story that's happened to you on your journey.
1: Oh gosh. Okay. So we were manufacturing our pilot collection kit and we had all the parts. We kind of collected parts from Thermo Fisher and Sigma and all these places. And we had our little ugly looking collection kit that we were gonna test out before we did the final manufacturing. The only custom part we had was a foam insert that, um, took six weeks to manufacture and die cut specifically to fit all of our little components in it. It got delivered to the wrong location. So I had my boyfriend at the time, who's now my husband, he had a truck. And one of the main reasons I was him had a truck. So I had him drive down and pick up these foam inserts. They were in three big boxes. Again, most expensive component took 6 weeks to manufacture very you know expensive for a startup company he puts them all into his his little truck and i'm like is this gonna is this gonna be okay He's like, yeah it'll ride we get right onto the highway i look back the the foam boxes shoot up into the air on the highway crash down in front of ca- cars are swerving everywhere And I am just watching all this happen and thinking to myself that my my brother, who's my co-founder, is going to murder me, that I destroyed all of these foam inserts for our pilot, which is launching the following week. Um, so I had to go run out onto the highway. The police came. We're collecting all these inserts. I'm crying. Um, But also that ends well, we collected about 80 percent of the foam inserts we Ultimately, we're able to manufacture them in my parents' garage. And um, the pilot for our kind of manufacturing prototype was launched on time with about 80% of the collection kits that we had planned for.
0: That's wonderful. it's kind of a happy ending. I hope hope your husband is not gonna be angry when he listens to this.
1: (laughs) We've talked about it several times since
0: So let's just reverse roles a little bit. Um, Erica. do you have any questions for
1: us? Yeah. So I think the first question I I kind of have, we talked a little bit about liquid biopsy, and I'm just curious... you know, in your mind, what is the, the role for liquid biopsy? And, and do you think that the standards for a liquid biopsy approach should be different than stool-based approaches?
0: Asma, I'll, I'll let you answer. Yeah, so I
2: think there's advantages to both stool and blood-based uh, testing. And um, I really think our population might, some might gravitate more towards a blood-based test. It definitely is less invasive and easier to collect. But then there's uh, from, you know, from studying uh, fit for for long enough, there's a certain chunk of the population that just does not want to deal with stool. And they're like, can you just draw blood like you draw? They're used to getting their blood drawn when they see a provider or just annually for other things. And they wouldn't mind a blood test being added on. And we certainly saw that with PSA. As you remember, PSA never had strong data to back it up but because it was so convenient and it could just be added on. In fact, a lot of the times, you know, patients had a PSA and they didn't even know that it was ordered. So it doesn't speak, you know, for what the test did, but it speaks for convenience and adherence. So I think there's pros and cons to both approaches. And in the future, I see um, us being able to offer both the options to maximize the number of people that would adhere and uh, certainly doing it in the patient's home is going to be key for both the tests so you know whether it's mobile phlebotomy or you know home collection kits i think that's truly uh, the way to go is to make it as convenient uh, for the patient as possible the pandemic uh, has kind of accelerated our efforts to deliver care at home and i think with these screening tests we just continue to extend that spectrum and as you know, for GI, there's few other reasons. You know, we can actually do a lot through telehealth itself. So this would add very nicely um, to what we can offer the patients.
1: Great. Another question I had, um, and I think you'll be able to touch on this very well. Um, so in what I've read based on the guidance is that there are really four categories of advanced adenomas. So we have high-grade dysplasia, carcinoma in situ. We have tubular villus or um, villus architecture. And then we have tubular adenomas greater than 10 millimeters and sessile serrated adenomas greater than 10 millimeters. I think you've touched on the idea that non-invasive tests have a higher screening interval. So in your mind is, are all adenomas created equal? You know, what would a non invasive diagnostic be required to detect to ensure that we're preventing colorectal cancer rather than just detecting it?
2: Yeah, that's a great point. So, ideally, we would like all four of those categories of uh, adenomas to be detectable. But, you know, size is kind of a surrogate for uh, histology, and they often go together, as we've seen in clinical practice. Um, so a size is only important because we think larger sizes, actually, we don't just think. We know that they are more likely to harbor high-grade dysplasia or villus features or both. So if I were to pick, then certainly advanced histology, which means either high-grade dysplasia followed by villus or tubular villus, uh, would be of importance. They just seem to be more along uh, the progression of the pathway. And as we know, very few adenomas ever actually turn into anything worrisome, so we truly worry about the ones that are either large or have acquired high-grade dysplasia or, you know, are turning into uh, submucosal cancers.
1: And then I think the last question that I really have, um, a lot of times when we talk about non-invasive screening to people, they their first assumption is that gastroenterologists are going to hate us. Um, You know, they say we're taking their bread and butter business. Um, You know, we're, they're not going to like us. So how can companies like us make sure that we include gastroenterologists in the conversation, that we supplement what they're trying to do in their efforts?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And we're helping you in that and trying to convince the GI community that first, uh, everybody wants the, put, wants to put the patient's interest at heart. So first, let's do what's important for the patient and let's do the patient right. If a non-invasive test uh, is, is uh, the way to go, then let's all stand behind it. Second, the other concept that we've been trying to tell the community is that um, their colonoscopy volume won't go down. In fact, it would actually go up because the pie will get bigger. As more people get screened, there'll be, you know, more diagnostic colonoscopies and then perhaps more surveillance colonoscopies. So if you look at a 10-year horizon, instead of doing a 1,000 screening colonoscopies, we'll trade those over the next 10 years for more diagnostic and surveillance colonoscopies, which truly is where the benefit of colonoscopy lies. And um, so they would actually benefit from having more options available.
0: I think I, I completely agree with that. I think in the guidelines, um, you guys cited a, a study um, at Kaiser Permanente that used FET testing, and the volume of colonoscopy increased ridiculously, simply because a lot of patients were not willing to get colon cancer screening. But when they got a convenient test, they did it. And they would have never gotten a colonoscopy, but when they tested positive for the FET, they actually went and got a colonoscopy. So, completely agree. Very
1: cool. Those were all the questions that I have, or unless you have any questions, outstanding.
0: Um, I have two more questions for you, Erica. The first one is, what's the best place for listeners to learn about Geniosk?
1: Absolutely. So. We are welcome to visit our website, um, or if you're interested or have patients that are interested in enrolling onto our clinical trial, we have uh, our virtual platform at colonscreeningstudy.com. Um, and then as mentioned, I love meeting people at conferences and talking to those who are advancing this space and just movers and shakers in the GI community. So Usually there would love to talk, say hi, just have a cup of coffee and talk about poop and cancer and things like that. So um, please reach out to me if if there's any interest in collaborating with genoscopy or learning more about our current pipeline, um, whether it be GI, IBD or other.
0: Wonderful. And the last question is, um, what list of publications would you recommend for people interesting, interested to learn more about the science behind genioscopy?
1: Sure. So we published in 2018 in Gastroenterology about the core um, technology and our feasibility trial for our lead diagnostic, which is the non-invasive screening assay for colorectal cancer and then last year we published our algorithm cutoff study in clinical and translational gastroenterology, which was a 1300 patient prospective clinical trial to further validate that, um, that lead assay for CRC screening. Um, and then I anticipate that we'll be publishing again this year on our 10,000 patient prospective pivotal. So that that's very exciting up and coming on the press. Um, so I think those those three publications. And then beyond that, um, I think just, just learning about, you know, how we've done non-invasive screening um, in other inflammatory conditions through my research at WashU. Um, there are publications there as well.
0: Wonderful. And we'll include a list of um, these and their DOIs um, in the description as well as uh, uh, your website's URL. Um, okay. Thank you. Um, both for joining us. Um, this was really a great conversation. Um, I enjoyed it very much and uh, hope to have you both again later on.
2: Absolutely, with some updates and hopefully you know, new information in the field. Excited about that. That'd be great,
1: thank you.
0: Wonderful. All right, thank you guys and have a great rest of the day. Yeah, thank you so much. And that concludes today's interview. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions, suggestions, Or if you want to be on a podcast, please reach out to me on my social media accounts. And please remember to rate us and leave a review. It'll really help us out in creating additional content. Thank you, and until next time.